that show. You've never oh watched Seinfeld. You know what? That's... Stop the podcast. You get out of here. <laughs> he eats an apple. George, Costanza eats an apple because he's trying to be relaxed in front of women. And, <laughs> and, and Jerry's like, no apple, dude. No apple. Don't do that. Because he's like, when he's on the phone with her, he goes. He starts talking to women like this. He's like, yeah, you want to go out? No problem. He's like, we sound more confident. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sound like you're eating an apple. And Jerry goes, "No apple." Anyways, I saw the uh, the contraceptive sponge episode. Uh, great episode, sponge worthy. That whole thing is absolutely amazing. I know that one because uh, that was my dad's invention. That's con- really. You're rolling in sponge money. Uh, no, <laughs> he spent the sponge money. <laughs> Buddy. All right, ready? Ready. All right, we're here. Podcast number, I can't remember, but we're at McGuire's right now, and it's super duper late, and we just spent, and I'm eating an apple at the same time. We just spent 35, 40 hours on uh, Matt Farah's uh, 5.0 heater or Mustang heater, whatever he calls it, and it was a lot of fun. We also were on Matt's podcast last night. Did you have fun, Kevin Brown? I had a good time. I was not but you know what? To... I need to introduce you. Sure. It's Kevin Brown. Hello. The Buff Daddy. The Buff Daddy. The Daddy of Buffing. <laughs> and then you all know that voice. That needs no introduction. <laughs> but you're going <laughs> to... I'm going to do it anyway. So I just wanted to, <laughs> the awkward pause. Jason Rose from McGuire's. All right. And he's eating I'm, apple. I'm drinking coffee. Yeah. It's... Uh, I think, What time is it, actually? Uh, Eleven something. Eleven twenty-five. So we've been buffing since what time did we get here? Eight o'clock, eight fifteen, eight thirty, something yeah. like that. Right. So we've been buffing this car for a long time. Um, so lots and lots of uh, questions. Hopefully, you guys have listened to um, thespokingtire dot com, and we shot a video today on all the procedures and things that we did on Matt's car. So. I really want to dive deep um, because it's not often we get to have Kevin Brown um, around, um, you know, on videos and podcasts to talk about something um, that I've experienced. In fact, I called him on the phone the other day. Um, I think we did we talk about this on the podcast with Farah a little bit briefly or no? I don't think so. I was running. I was doing a job and there's a young guy that um, that's a client that has a bunch of different. Mercedes, and they're all sort of new. It's either 2013 or 2014, and just like lots of them, but he's only one guy. I digress. So he wanted me to like polish these things out, and I did. And I, the one, the first car was like easy as pie, no problem. The second one, I was having these amazing issues uh, with finishing, uh, finishing off, you know, the, the, and polish. And I had no idea, so I called Kevin Brown. And the answer you gave me, was I'll let you do the answer. Well, I take a lot of calls like that every day or just about every day from customers and people that have heard about me and want some advice when they're in the moment of polishing and they've hit the wall and they're on the ledge and they don't know what to do. They may have worked on a car for an hour to four hours trying to <laughs> finish the paint properly. And you were in that similar situation, uh, not desperate, but you had – Run out of fresh ideas. Yes. So I automatically will ask you, what are you working on? And what machines do you have in your arsenal? What have you tried? 
what pads you have, what liquids, and within a minute or two, I can come up with uh, something that you can put into effect. As an example, if you have a Meguiar's G110 random orbital, I'll, I'll take that into account. Or if you have a Bigfoot, you know, Group's 21 millimeter throw machine, I'll take that into account. So anyway, uh, you had a very common problem. You, you had some residue issues and you had a pad issue where uh, people, most people aren't aware of this, but uh, you were using a finishing pad, right? You were working on a car that was not... Yeah, I had a foam pad, which I thought was like, that, that's what we've been using for the last 150 years. Right. And you had <laughs> like a foam pad. You're like, okay, I'm polishing. Let's do a polishing or, you know, a, yeah. a soft pad. You had a, a finishing pad. Finishing pad, thank soft, you. Soft, pliable, cushiony. And so uh, it turned out that was one of the... The issues. One of the issues. It was too soft, too pliable. All right, so explain. This is where... All right, I'm back. The, the apple just... The, the sugar from the apple just hit me. I'm back. I'm ready. Explain the issue with the foam pad, the soft foam pad, about how it folds on itself. And try to describe that because obviously we're not on video. We're on, on Yeah, and it's going to be world. something I'll have to correlate or compare. So I would say the easiest thing to envision might be a typical broom that you use for a house, you know, to sweep your, sweep your floors. Mm -hmm. So if you were to hold the broom you know, perfectly vertical to the floor and let the bristles touch the floor, they don't bend yet or anything like that, mm -hmm. and then you were to move the broom back and forth with the bristles barely touching, you could see those bristles move, uh, you know, bend, flex, okay? If you then put a lot of pressure on those bristles and force those bristles to bend and distort. Some of those might lay on each other. Some might just go out of into another direction. Flare and out. Have inconsistent yeah. sweeping of the surface, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a similar type of thing happening when the pad has uh, a lot of motion going on, as in the case where you're using an LHR-21. Mm -hmm. I was using the 21. A lot of side-to-side -side motion, a lot of lateral movement, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, with with the weight of the machine and your holding pressure, uh, that pad was getting so much movement that the walls, the walls between the pores of the pad started to flex to the point where they were bending completely sideways or crushing and, and then laying on each other. And so sometimes they might even lay on each other and, and then scrape one way and scrape another way and never come back to vertical and it causes a problem. Cause a scouring issue. So I just learned, you know, the the KBM method all this time. I, I thought it was Kevin Brown, but it's really the kitchen broom method. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's how I learned it. That is hysterical. Uh, to make sure you uh, talk into the microphone. Okay. Um, that that is huge. So the the solution that you came up with that I thought you were not feeling well when you gave me that. I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, are you sure you want me to try this? Yeah, uh... that's literally, I was like, uh, okay. Um, so his advice was go to a stiffer pad. I'm like, okay, a stiffer pad. In my mind, my small little brain said a stiffer pad means more abrasive. Okay, this guy's weird. And then you asked me to put uh, a few squirts of M205, right? Right. M205. Into a, uh, you know, a, a trigger, bottle. trigger bottle full of water. Full, full, full of water. What was the percentage 
like what like 50 50 or well you'd have to tell me what you did because we were on the phone yeah, but you yeah. know it, it can vary Good from point. a couple of drops to 16 ounces uh to a guy uh, my friend aaron bodley in florida he's doing uh something called jason Kilmer recommended to him on the same premise of one part 205 to two parts of water it's not something that we recommend as a rule to take something that took a year or two to develop and to say well let's start diluting this down but we've got new problems that have come up with the advent of the LHR-21, with the advent of microfiber, with, uh, with the advent mm -hmm. of uh, super micro abrasives. There's a lot, of, a lot of force, a lot of speed of cut, and it's causing a problem to where we're getting such rapid cut that uh, the residue is causing a problem. Yeah, we're actually loading, loading up pads quicker than we used to. Yeah. Right. So in your case, I think that what we tried to do was minimize the amount of abrasive or the amount of polish we were using and get it to disperse across the buffing pad so that it would be uh, very consistently layered. So if you can imagine just having a handful of marbles and setting them on the table, they would not stack. They would fall to each other's side and they would be in one plane, right? Mm -hmm. And so that would yeah. be a very consistent layering of the marbles. And we're trying to use that same idea when we were using the water to disperse the 205 onto your pad and onto the paint surface. You know what I just did? Cut me off? No. I just figured out that I was playing with... <laughs> this is what's getting really late. I was playing with uh, Jason's volume the entire time, and I'm going, wow, I cannot regulate, but there's only two of us on this podcast. This is when you know it's late, and I there's two buttons here, and I had, <laughs> I had a choice of two buttons, and I was playing with the wrong one the entire time. That's okay. So you were really loud. But you're Sorry. really important, so that's good. <laughs> so, yeah, what I did was I, I put the 205 into that squirt bottle. I squirt. There's a clean uh, – this is a – what did I use? A yellow roots pad. I asked, I asked you – what we did was we went through a procedure. I would say, okay, try this procedure. Call me back. Tell yep. me what you see. We did that six or seven times. Easily. And yeah, I, this, um, by the way, you know, is called troubleshooting. So there was an issue that came up. Um, you identified what the issue was, and then the troubleshooting begins by experimenting, trying different things. That's right. And the thing we did was we only changed one, one segment. Variable. One, right, variable. one variable. Right, one variable, which was the – we didn't change anything except for the quantities of 205 we were using, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. You're saying, you know what, You know, put a little more squirt. So basically I squirted into like you know a hairspray bottle kind of thing, you know, like a squirt bottle. Uh, 205, and it just looked really weird. It's like this, you know, pour drops in, and you look at it, and you're, but then you shake it up, and you squirt it, you know, you squirt it out of the, the, this was so foreign to me, but I didn't put any 205 or any compound or anything on the Rube's pad, and the, the uh, swirls, the hazes, I should say, came out. Yeah. And Perfect. If, if I remember correctly, we were doing this with the white finishing pad, and you said, it's a lot better. I that, that's back. correct. We it's did we did better, that first, but it's not perfect. I mean, it's it's getting there, but it's not where it needs to be. That's when I thought you were crazy because you said go to the. I was like, well, isn't the yellow pad the more aggressive pad? And you're like, well, yeah. And the reason why I'm learning now because of Matt's car is because of the compression in this. I I don't know why, but I think of it like like the '50s dancers when they're doing like the shimmy shake or whatever. The I don't know why either. Well, <laughs> like like the pad shakes in the middle, right? And you always see those yeah. people doing the uh, whatever crazy dance. Anyways, yeah, back on track. Uh, back on track. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, I don't remember the fifties actually. 
So I, once you had said, uh, you know, this sixth procedure, we've narrowed down. We were using too much or, you know, pressure, speed, all that sort of thing. Um, I knew when you said it looks better. We've improved a lot. That's when I knew. Well, let's, it's the pad. Totally. And it worked. And it worked. And it was amazing. So and that same problem happened on Matt's car. Yeah. And at that point, the instructions were basically do what you've done. Keep the pad extremely clean. That's your number one thing. Control the residue buildup. That's that's what we're hitting on so much this year is residue, residue, residue. Right. You know. And with Matt's car, because it was we had such, you know, horrific paint on it, it wasn't like it was like, you know, the world's greatest body shop or, you know, OEM that had great paint on it. We're not really sure what happened, but it certainly wasn't factory paint. No. Um, so when we were taking it off, it was coming off pretty pretty easily. Well, we had we had three things going on with his paint. Um, we had uh, lots of defects, and some of them severe defects, and we had lots of texture. Second thing we had was very thin paint. And this was single-stage thin paint. Mm -hmm. But the third thing we were dealing with was relatively soft paint. So those three, Combination, three yeah. combinations amounted to, you know, a bit of a challenge on that car. And it was... In, an insane amount of residue because I was watching Kevin um, polish something and I would literally just sit there and watch him and it took a few times, took a few times and bang, he'd get it perfect and I would go right next to him and think, okay, no problem, got it. And I would do the same thing, the same technique, the same arm motion and I couldn't get the poly I couldn't get it to finish out and what I was forgetting, I was like, okay, I'm going to do one 1,000, two 1,000, you know, like my brains count, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to do the same thing, I'm um, going up and down, whatever I was doing. I was basically copying everything, but I had forgotten, essentially, the residue control. So as it built up, I was actually putting more scratches into the into the paint as I was doing it. I became wildly frustrated. And then when Kevin, when you would come over and fix it, I'm like, all right, well, what are you going to do that I just haven't done? Because I did exactly what you did. The same pressure, same speed, same arm, da, da, da. And then the first thing you did was, like, you didn't even touch the paint. You grabbed the pad. Went back. Walked you, away from the car. Yeah. <laughs> cleaned it, you know, yeah. did it with yeah. the air, the whole nine yeah. yards. Yeah. And you came back and you yeah. put the tiniest little drop of polish on there and you went to town and it was done in a matter of a couple seconds. Yeah. So that, that concept. Well, uh, that, I'm, I'm that confident that residue is that big of a problem. It it's is, huge. It's huge. It, it kills cut. It kills finishing potential. It, and it, and it, we don't notice it because we're mostly working on base coat, clear coat system. So the average guy is not going to think, well, my pad's loaded up because he can't he see can't it. He can't see it. But we mm -hmm. had that advantage today where we could see it obviously on a you know, white or yellow foam pad with black paint. It was very obvious. Actually, that, that was pretty cool. That, that's Maybe that was your point that this video that we shot today is going to be so Well, it, it's such an important point that in, in our training going forward, we're, we're actually going to put some single-stage paint on panels uh, as we teach detailers how to, you know, do this kind of polishing technique and to pay attention to paint residue management. But single-stage paint allows you to see what's going on on the pad in terms of residue coming off the paint and loading up your pad. Because it's not clear. Yeah. Yeah. Of clear coat. Right. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I would like to have guys that are doing this for a living or, or trying to become very good at polishing to try to remove for the time being for the moment uh don't be so concerned of hey is this soft paint or is this hard paint 
it's all paint. It's it's just going to come off at a different speed or different rate. Different rate, right? So knowing that, uh, it's very difficult to know all of the manufacturers what types of paint to use. We were the talking fact about is this they have the backup ride. systems, another backup system in case something goes wrong with one. They're not going to shut down. You've told me this, Jason. They're mm. not going to shut down the spray. Boots. Yeah, they get a bad batch of uh, paint or whatever. They're immediately switching to another brand of paint there. In fact, every car manufacturer that I've ever been to has multiple contracts with paint brands, and they are instantly switching online, you know, uh, from one brand to another. So they kind of track by make and model whether the paint is hard or soft on this car and hard on that car. The amount car. of time you spend trying to track yeah. it is yeah. – it would take you way less time just to test it yeah. and figure out what it is. And then doing. even if you did figure it out and you kind of got close to there, the, the there's other variables that come into play. For example, collision repairs on cars – now you have refinished panels, maybe two or three panels on that car that are refinished, and you're going to have a totally different hardness level on those. Yeah, I, I think what, what I what keeps coming to mind, and we talked about this in the car ride, is I'm always struggling to try to find a way to standardize something. I think my brain just tries to do that automatically, and there really isn't a standard. But like step one is to do this. It's There, there isn't. And it's, right. I guess the, 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 the only standard thing I can think of, ironically, is that there is no standard. That there's, you just sort of have to test it, and every car is different. It's like a fingerprint, you know. Every car is different, but I think, you know, as going forward, I'm trying to say, how, how can I help people more and shoot video well, and podcasts? I, I can actually answer that for you because there is a step one in in the scenario that you're thinking of, uh, and it's not cataloging paint hardness with by you know brand and make and model. But your step one literally is on every job. Your step one is do a test spot. Do a test spot and learn about that paint. It'll tell you a lot by doing a spot. Hey, I totally a, agree. There you that's go. A new that's a new t shirt for you. Do a lot by doing a spot. Gosh. <laughs> I learned from you, Jason, in testing to not, uh, if I'm going to try to figure out a problem or, or to push the limits of a product, to just make that one change. So, as an example, if you want to get good at this, and you have some spare time, maybe you can't do this while you're working every day, but you certainly can do this on some downtime, is to say, okay, from now on, the only buffing liquid in my arsenal is something such as Meguiar's M205. That's all I get to use. I'm going to use that for cutting, for finishing, for mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And that's when you can really... That's a cool idea. I like that. Yeah, you can test the limit completely. I did that with microfiber and, and M105. It's okay to say now. But during the testing, I would say without being um, overblown there, I would say I have 1,000 hours into 105 and microfiber mm -hmm. just to see how well I could finish down with it, how well I could cut, water, no water, all these things, the speeds. Yeah. And consequently, I know a lot about the microfiber, how to use it. I may not know what you use, you know, what quantity, what length, but I don't need to know that. I just yeah. need to know that I can do this. If I do A, B, and C, I get this. And uh, I think if you want to become an expert paint polisher, you limit your choices and uh, and just try different speeds with 205. Try it with microfiber. Try it with foam. Try it with different diameters, different pressures, different machines. And you'll be surprised what you can learn if right. you're looking for yeah. it. Mm, I think that's a really good piece of advice. That's a long-term play, meaning... If you're looking to be like the world's best polisher and all that kind of thing, which is 
a lot of guys are. Most guys are. That that's the way to go mm-hmm. if you're trying to be the overnight sensation kind of thing, or you're looking for step one, step two, step three, and you kind of go put a blindfold on and you you can feel around with your hands. Is this a Ferrari or is this a Honda or is this a 1920s car or ni- There is there is no cookie cutter way um, to sort of do that. So. I guess I struggle a lot. You can see my hesitation. I struggle all the time because I get these emails, and I don't really know how to answer that without saying, "I don't know. I don't. I don't know what you're. I'm not there. I haven't tested it. I can't. I would love to give you the do this, 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 and this, and you'll be successful, but I can't. I have to say you have to test. Well, you you see what I'm saying? So how yeah, you- and I and I think part of the problem is everybody wants the magic bullet. Yeah, well, and I tell them you don't need a magic bullet if you have good aim. Because a normal, regular bullet is remarkably effective if you have aim. Mm. So the first thing I'll ask a guy, like I said before, is what do you have in your arsenal of products? Because a lot of times they'll call and say, what do you think about product A or product B? Or do I need to get this pad? Or I said, you don't need to get anything. What you need to get is a procedure down. So let's let's focus on your procedure mm-hmm. first, yeah. your aim. And virtually every time we can we can solve the problem with the same products the guy has, he hasn't spent any more money, which is very frustrating because you buy a product and some of these products are very expensive and you get it and you say, I got the same problem. Well, you're using the same procedure. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So it's just something to think about. And you know, I've talked myself out a lot of sales that way, but I've gained a customer. Well, he didn't get any sales, but I got a customer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but uh, the guys appreciate that. They appreciate because I've been there myself. I know what that's like. It's very frustrating. And so, yeah, that's the best advice I could give. I, I have no doubt that Jason could have picked any one buffing liquid in the arsenal. And I would say, well, that's what I've got to deal with. I know how to cut with that, and I'm going to figure out how to finish with it or vice versa. And we would have a pretty good result. Right. I like that. Now, you know, switching topics a little bit here, I wanted to pick your brain and, and tell me a little bit about um, – Start from the beginning, if you don't mind, on offset, where go from the rotary, you know, quickly, but really talk about the advantages of having a larger offset and when it's not an advantage to have a larger offset, like on edges and things like that. That's um, a big topic. That's a that's a huge topic. I sort of threw a big matzo ball. Well, it's an interesting talk, topic because the way it's being portrayed, as an example, the Rupus LHR21 Bigfoot, the 21-millimeter orbit diameter. Big foot, massive throw, mm. powerful. And you think, well, obviously that's for cutting. I don't want to finish with that, which is totally false. You know, there's caveats to that. There's there's certain instances where it will not finish down properly, but they're related to panel shapes and things. They relate to things where that extended throw or lateral motion will cause a problem if it hits something. Mm-hmm. Like the video that I we just posted up and I was talking about. Right. Great video. Have, great a, timing. A little a little vent or something where you don't want throw. Right. You'll you'll bang in as you go along. Then a rotary might work. The evil rotary might, you know, do the right job. So there there are cases that our little trio calls it a zero offset. Forced rotation orbital now. We're still- <laughs> <laughs> I think one person right now just went like, oh. Right, uh, right. That's a, a small group of guys. Yes, that that's know a that detailing one. joke for a rotary, which is. <laughs> right. No, at 1130 at night, it's hysterical. Yeah, there, there's a purpose for the rotary. It will not go away. And that would be yeah. primarily when you cannot have a deviation of the pad, meaning it has to be on axis. You said it 
a couple of days ago. You said it dead on, Jason. Um, like laser you on know. center axis. On center, yeah. it does yeah. not deviate from center. It's it's rotating like a you know, a drill bit. It mm -hmm. does not move side to side at all. You might need to remove a defect right on a line of a fender or right next to a windshield wiper arm or something where you can't have deviation because if that pad moves left to right up and down or you know side to side I should say uh, it's going to impact a delicate part and possibly cause damage to it so um, this is where you go from a rotary and the next step would be so okay a, a very short offset a small offset so we'd go from a rotary which is forced constantly driven right and then we would switch to our random orbital do we want to discuss that or do you feel that most guys I mean, people get the random orbital, you know, aspect of it, but speak more about the, the advantages and disadvantages of having an offset. When would a small offset be? Well, let me take it to where I, I taught my, I, I gained my knowledge, which was through woodworking. I'm not a woodworker, but I know that typical woodworking would say, hey, for fine sanding, you want a very short stroke. You want very little motion, uh, lateral motion of the backing plate side and the side, sanding. Side to side. Right. For fine sanding. And I thought, well, wait a minute. What does it matter what the grit size is? It doesn't. Not, not in my mind. So let's take that out of there for the moment. But uh, so when is a short stroke? If you're a woodworker, when is that ideal? Well, let's say you're working on a four-inch wide plank of wood and you have a three-inch sanding disc and you don't want that. If you had a large stroke, it might roll off to the left and roll off to the right. Off and the edge. Round the fender. Yeah, yeah, round, yeah. round the edges. Gotcha. Not the fender. Round, round the edges. Mm -hmm. That would be a problem. So you'd want a shorter stroke so that it would stay on that wood and not roll off the edges and, and, and smooth sense. them out, right? Another time you might want a short stroke machine is if you were sanding inside of a box, inside of a, a dresser drawer or a cabinet. You couldn't get into the corner very tight because it would start to bash the sides you know, the, the upright sides of the cabinet or the box. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have a large stroke. You would cause damage, and you couldn't get in that tight. So um, that's that's where I would use a short stroke. For me, if you can fit the machine and not cause it to bash into other things, for me, everything points to a large stroke as giving you a better cut and a better finish. Um, well, what it means is uh, at the microscopic level, it's more efficient motion across that surface the taller the stroke is you're going to have uh, a straighter linear path across defects and it's just going to be more efficient and you know i'll tell you a story when when i first came across you know using the the bigfoot tool mm -hmm. there were several aha moments that happened for me you know they kind of went in succession and the first one obviously was you know you pick up the tool you put a cutting disc, uh, microfiber disc, very first thing I would do on it. And uh, the first aha moment was, oh, my gosh, this thing removes defects like crazy. Cuts, cuts very fast. That was the first aha moment. The second one was, oh, my gosh, it has this huge tall stroke, but it is a very smooth running tool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. And the user experience for me was remarkable. When you think about the tall stroke and being able to hold this tool and have it be smooth, that was another aha moment. And then the third aha moment for me was the one Kevin mentioned, which is, wow, I, I'm removing defects like crazy. The tool is comfortable in my hands. 
but it's finishing remarkably well for what you would expect or what you would think might be an aggressive mm. cutting tool that probably doesn't finish well. It finished amazingly well. So it turned out to be the succession of aha moments for me. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a, the tall stroke, uh, and not just Rupes, but I just think tall stroke is kind of a big aha moment in our category for detailing in, in terms of machine polishing. It's like, wow, okay, big stroke really does mean something for us here. Mm. And it's not just about, remember I was saying the, the Garros 3-inch versus the Rupes 3-inch, and I said immediately the first thing I think of is that it's got more power. Yeah. And you were like, well, it does it? Well, it may or may not, but it's not but usually it was, relevant it, to that's polishing. You're like, it's irrelevant. And I was like, wait a second. That actually blew my mind. Yeah. Did you think it, and you're like, yeah, well, this just got more power. And yeah, like, it's well, irrelevant. Who the hell cares if it has yeah. more power? If it, yeah, as long as it can if, – if you've it got it power set at 3,000 RPM and it can maintain 3,000 RPM under a load, then mm -hmm. it has ample power. So there's a misunderstanding going on there. I want to give a, a, an analogy that I use on the telephone a lot because – when you're talking to a guy over the phone and you're trying to explain, they say, tell me what's so great about this. What does the large stroke actually do? Like, wow, okay, well. <laughs> yeah, are you sitting down? Uh... Yeah, and, and it is that way. But the, the best analogy I can think of is let's relate this to sanding a piece of wood by hand. So I say, hey, Larry, you, you know, I want you to take this one foot by one foot square piece of wood. It's very valuable wood. I want you to hand sand that to perfection. I want it to be as smooth as you can get it and as defect-free. So take your time and do it right. So you say, well, okay, give me my sheet of sandpaper and my sanding block, and I'll wrap that sandpaper around the block so I have a nice flat surface to put my hand on. And I'm not, you're thinking, I'm not going to go and just encompass this whole piece of wood. I'm going to take it section by section, and I'm going to dial in just a very small section at a time, check my work, then I'm going to move on. Yeah. So in order to do that, I'm going to put my block down, and every second I'm going to move forward a millimeter. I'm going to move my sanding block forward a millimeter, stop, and then I'm going to come backwards uh, two millimeters, stop. You're going to go forward and backwards a millimeter each way. Mm -hmm. One stroke per second. Stroke forward per second, stroke back. So you start to do that, and you say, hey, that's working pretty good. And then almost immediately you start to say, hey, my sanding's slowing down, and I'm getting gouging. What's going on here? So you stop, and you look at your sandpaper sheet, and you say, my goodness, all that wood that I sanded off is stuck on my sandpaper sheet. And it's it's burying my abrasive, It's so it's limiting my sanding ability, and it's rolling around and making these little wood spheres that are grinding into my, my wood surface. Mm -hmm. So you clean it. You'd smack it clean and say, well, that's not working. I'm just going to extend the stroke. I'm going to extend the stroke. So I'm going to go, instead of a millimeter forward per second, I'm going to go an inch forward per second and an inch backwards. Well, you've already accomplished a lot of things. Number one, by going from a millimeter forward per second to one inch, you have to go faster because you're traveling a lot farther distance per second, right? Mm -hmm. So from going a millimeter to one inch, you're going a lot faster to cover that area. So you've got speed. Speed creates force. So now you've got a forceful cut. The second thing you're doing is because you are moving so much more, any debris or wood, you know, wood residue that was under the sandpaper and that couldn't escape before, mm -hmm. now because you've got so much motion, 
there's a good chance that that stuff's going to roll out of the way and evacuate from between the sandpaper and the wood, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. now you've got a cleaner cut. You've got force because you've got speed, and you've got cleanliness because you've got motion. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense to me. Well, relay that to a short stroke machine versus a large stroke. You've got you know, more motion, more orbit size per revolution, and because of that, you've got more speed, and you've got more ability to clean uh, or, or to keep the cut clean because as you scrub paint away, if you can move it around a lot more, it's going to still stick to the pad and it's still going to be you know, laden with paint residue that's been ground away. But it's going to stick momentarily because there's so much sideways lateral motion and rotation. It's going to fall off again. Mm-hmm. And when it does, it's going to roll around and get recrushed and redistributed. And that's why we get extended cut. We get faster cut. We get better finishing. And that's, um, you know, with microfiber, it's not, uh, microfiber still has an issue with scouring and loading up because those strings, uh, as they start out with very fine individual strings, mm. as you add in abrasive from our polishes and compounds, as you add in paint residue, those can bind those strings together. So imagine your hand with your, your four fingers standing up there and they're individual, those fingers are individual strands. But if we start to pack in between that something sticky and um, uh, um, grippy, mm-hmm. your fingers would start to tighten up and become one big, instead of four individual fingers, you'd have a clump of fingers. Mm-hmm. And you ha- therefore, you have a, a thicker, you know, a thicker cut. So your microfiber binds together and eventually it's not microfiber anymore. It's just fibers that have been bound together and now you've got macrofiber. There you go. Is that That's sensible? That's actually great. That's a great yeah. word. So microfiber, is that a word you just came up with? No, that's a fact. Uh, there are filaments. Each individual string, as he calls it, is called a filament. And it's filament dynamics in the whole textile world. But macrofibers are ones that are bound together. There's multiple filaments that are stuck together. But also another thing that plays into this, Kevin, is uh, the true functionality of a microfiber filament, what it's designed to do, because it's a, it's a truly synthetic filament, man-made filament. But if you compare that to natural fibers like wool or cotton, um, this microfiber is designed to grab and hold. That's what it does. Is it, takes, mm. it takes fluids, it takes particulate, it takes stuff, and it grabs and holds. So if you imagine at a microscopic level, at the filament level, what's happening is you're coming by with this abrasive, you're removing that paint residue, and then what does it do with it? It grabs, grabs and holds. And holds. That, is, huh. that is great. Yeah. Because if you, th- the, you just blew my mind. Because if, you know, we take wax off, what do we take wax off with? Microfiber Because yeah. it picks it up. You take, you take glass cleaner off, you take oils and you residues should, you off. You should use that as well when you're yeah. talking to people on the phone, Kevin, because that is a great, that that's just, true. Like, that's just yeah. locked in my mind. Like, that's true. That makes total sense to me. Yeah, that's just some of the aspects of why the large stroke machines, if that's what we started with, why they, they're so... Yeah, they're all hot topic. I figured I'd get Yeah, right they, this is intertwined. You could talk about this for a long time. Like, you could do a podcast about it. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, here's the other thing. Why does the... When, when you're using a polishing machine... Normally, you would let's say you started out at the lowest speed setting. You'd turn it on. Uh, the first thing you would do is say, "Wow, this you know this is very low speed." Well, what would tell you that was too low of a speed would be that if you turn it on and the machine was gripping the paint surface and it was steering your arm and hands, and you say, "Wow, I need to add more speed to get this thing to plane up and start flowing around smoothly." 
So once you did that, you say, okay, now it's under good control and it's the machine is gliding along and I can control it easily. Well, now at that point, why do you add more speed with a random orbital polisher? What's the normal thing that you would, why would you increase speed? What would tell you say, hey, I need to increase the speed with this machine? I mean, typically like- Typically, the, what would cause you to, to you ramp wanna, up the RPM? You want to cut more, you want to uh, you want to get more out of the- what do you, Well, what I'm saying is, would you add speed because you looked at the paint and said, wow, that's looking pretty good. But if I could polish that spot right there 10 times more a second, it would be better. So let me dial in you know, 10 more orbits per second times six, 60 seconds. Would you dial in 600 RPM so you could polish one particular area mm. better? No. Mm. You would simply say, well, I'll just run over it one more pass or I'll just run across mm. it more slowly. We're not usually adding RPM to the machine so that we can polish an area more efficiently. We're adding it because we don't have enough backing plate rotation. Most of the time, a guy's looking at it and he said, man, my my buffing pad is stalling. It's not rotating at all. Let me ramp up the speed, right? Mm -hmm. Is that right. true? Yeah. 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 Well, Absolutely. with the larger stroke, if everything else is the same, if, and on a flat panel, let's assume we're working on a flat panel. We've got two identical machines. We're using the same pad and liquid system. Everything's the same. But the stroke's different. I can almost guarantee you that the machine with the larger stroke will deliver more no random backing rotation. plate rotation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's purely a gearing thing. It's it, it's a little difficult to explain. And the point, you know, just to sort of remind everybody, if that pad isn't really spinning, you're not doing a whole lot. Is that is that the whole point of well, what we're what, talking about? What you kind of do is you neuter the whole dual action part of it, and you kind of put it into single action mode. If if there's no rotations, all you're doing is oscillating. And you, that's true. But here's the here here's what's occurring. What causes a problem is that let's say that we're using a machine that has a 10 millimeter orbit diameter, 10 millimeters. Okay, so that means it's offset five millimeters, and when it spins around, it creates a 10 millimeter orbit diameter. Well, what if we have a pad that's fairly tall and pliable, and it can actually bend and flex and twist five three or four five millimeters five. either way? Yeah. Well, there would be a point with some machines that your pad would have an ability to absorb all of the machine motion, and, and you'd have a net of zero oh, motion yeah, at yeah, the yeah. paint level. There so wouldn't be any oscillation. There wouldn't at be the any surface, right? Because the pad itself would be jiggling the same right. distance. It that would the... absorb all the energy of the stroke from the tool, right? Yeah. And that happens, and that's why guys turn up the machine because they say, "Wow, nothing's happening, but I'm buzzing and my pad's getting hot, but there's nothing going on. I need more rotation." So you're hoping that you can change, you know, you can you can at least get some motion going, and then maybe it won't be bending just one way. Or you know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And the, a large stroke machine. Hey, if you've got that same pad on there and it's it, it can absorb five or six millimeters, oh, well, we've got 21. We're still going to get a lot of motion. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And and because of the dynamic of the large stroke, the larger the stroke, the more backing plate rotation you get. If I feel like I just need one or two turns of the backing plate per second, I can turn that machine down. Yeah. Okay, so I don't need to be on speed six. I could be on speed three or two and still have ample rotation. Mm. And I've got massive motion. We talked about that with the sanding of the wood, right? I've got massive 
motion. So there's good control of the residue buildup. It, it's helping to solve that issue. So I can drop my speed. That's going to keep my pads cooler because there's not so much uh, uh, internal friction from, mm. the, from the foam moving back and forth and rubbing against itself. The paint's going to be cooler. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be more comfortable to use. The machine is more stable. See, that's interesting because I'm, I'm, as you're saying that, I'm starting to pay attention to what are the speeds that I use that tool on. And I'm, uh, I'm usually at three or four. Mm. And, and then so is Kevin. I looked at you. You remember you were at three mm-hmm. point three and a half, mm-hmm. a little under four. And then comparing that to, you know, my own Meguiar's G110V2, I'm usually at four and five with that tool. So it's consistent with what you're saying. Yeah. That that smaller stroke, you know, I'm trying to compensate with some some more speed behind the pad rotation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. With the grows six inch, I'm always at five or six. Yeah, and it's interesting with with the LA, the Bigfoot series because a guy will ask me on the phone, "What speed should I use?" And I say, "It's impossible to tell you a number. I have to tell you to turn on the machine on a low speed, plane up the machine so it feels smooth and comfortable to use." And watch the backing plate rotation. So first thing is turn it on speed one or two. Make sure the machine is flowing and, and easy to control. Now watch your backing plate. You know, most time most guys will take a, a, a magic marker and make one line on right. the side of their plate or a dot so they can see the rotation. You just need some. You know, so if you've got none, bump the speed up till you start seeing that rotate. Get a turn or two per second, and uh, as long as you've got that, you're in good shape. Here's the thing. When they say, well, what speed should I use? I say, I can't tell you that because we all are – what kind of pad are you using? What kind of compound or polish are you using? How much downward pressure? How much drag on the yeah. vein are you getting? I mean there's – Microfiber or foam. So what kind many, of yeah. foam? Single stage or clear coat. Is that matter? And, yeah. And, well, yeah. Anything that can cause the friction to change. I mean as an example, if I gave you the uh, Rupus Blue – extra cut pad, very rigid, very porous. And if you thought about it and looked at it, you say, wow, there's not really a lot of foam touching this paint surface. I mean, it's still a, a seven inch face on the pad or six inch, whatever you happen to be using. But the actual amount of foam in contact is not very much because it's mostly pores. Mm. Okay. Now, if I say now your polishing style, Larry, I've seen you compound a car. You use the blue pad and you use only five drops of your compound, right? Mm-hmm. But me, I use a Meguiar's microfiber cutting disc, and I use Meguiar's M101, and I prime my pad with M101. So I've got a, I'm squirting a lot of compound on there, rubbing it in all these microfibers, which I don't know what could be the difference, 50, 100, 500, 1,000 times more surface area that I potentially have to scrub paint yeah. and all that 101. Who's going to have more potential for friction? Mm. I am. Mm. So therefore, my machine is not going to rotate nearly as much as yours. So yours might be ample speed on speed two, and I might need to bump up to speed five to get, you know, a turn or two per second. You see? Does Mm. that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah. So trying to tell a guy what's the proper speed, that's like saying, you know, uh, what I I can't record. I say that a different way. I mean, to me, that's about what I call pad drag. So it's the resistance against the pad, whatever pad you're using but there's a like to your point there's a lot of variables that contribute to pad drag it's you know the type of compound you use the type of pad you use the you know even if your paint is wet or dry um you know these are severe defects if you if you're a friction point is severe defects Mm. if you had light defects 
you'd have less pad drag on that one variable alone. Yeah, that does make yeah. sense. So I mean, a lot of things contribute to, you know, how you how how this friction gets created and what's going to cause pad drag. So that translates into what speed setting on your dial you're going to need yeah. in that moment. But the bottom line is the offset. Not this new, I don't want to call it new territory, but this new game of having a bigger offset where your thumbs up. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. I, I, like I said, if you can reasonably use the machine on a panel and it's not going to bash mm-hmm. panels that are vertical or parts that are vertical to the area you're polishing, to me, it's almost always a win. You know, there's there's times where it's not reasonable to use, and I'll grab my G110 V2 with an eight millimeter. We, we orbit. did that on the back of Matt's because yeah. we couldn't go over and nail the uh, on the back trunk. You know, uh, Jason, I think you were doing it. We couldn't use the roofs just because the throw was hitting the glass, sure, or the you know the molding or whatever. Well, and you know, um, we talked about this earlier too. That when you think about which you know, there's some detailers out there asking what what's the right tool for me, you know. Uh, I hear all these different tools and 15 millimeter, 21 mil, whatever. <clears throat> and you heard what my answer was earlier today, which was I believe that the smartest approach for today's detailers and contemporary detailing is to actually have a three-tool approach. So it isn't the question of which is the best tool for me. <clears throat> it's which which are the best three tools for me. Mm-hmm. So I would have a tall stroke tool, Right. And because I haven't learned what you have, Kevin, which is I think you've you've mastered how to do edge work with a tall stroke tool. Yeah, you I were can, doing that that last part. I was watching you do it. You were going to town on edge work. Yeah, that. that was incredible. And I can't claim that I'm that great at it. I'm learning, and you know I can get better at it, but I'm not there yet. So I actually on my edge work would switch to another tool. So I would use you know the eight millimeter, uh, you know McGuire's tool in this case. Uh, to do my edge work. So there's two tools right there. Mm-hmm. Middle panel, wide open spaces. I'm using the tall stroke tool. Edge work, I'm doing the G110 V2. Um, and then I have the three inch tool to do like what you were saw, saw me doing today on on the, the tail end of Matt's car. On those tight areas, you know, where I only have a little bit of space to work, I'm using a small three inch, you know, pad on those. Mm-hmm. So those are the three tools. Yeah, and, three tool and edge work's the key because uh, even if you had plenty of room, no vertical panels to where you're polishing, no vertical parts, nothing that could get damaged, if you want to work an edge, your most efficient edge working tool is a rotary. And then after that, it's a short stroke machine. I mean, imagine if you had even a handheld drill or a rotary mm-hmm. and you put a pad on there and you centered it on the backing plate and you set it on the paint and you held it in place and you turned on the machine, and you did not move the machine. You just held it in place for a second or two. You could turn that on, and let's say we're using a 6-inch pad. You could turn on the machine, stop the machine, lift the buffing pad off the surface, and you would measure with a ruler 6 inches across, right? You would measure. You could affect 6 inches across. So now if you said, okay, if, if I said take off, pull off that buffing pad, and... Place it off center, off axis, an inch. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, put that back on the surface. Same thing. Do not move the machine. Just turn it on for a couple of seconds. You know that pad's going to be wobbling. Okay. It's an inch off center. Right. 
matter of fact, it's going to wobble a whole entire inch all the way around. So when, when, we, when we polished for a second or two and I say lift that machine, you would now measure your six-inch diameter plus the offset of an inch. So you would well, be measuring yeah, so that eight. you would be affecting yeah. an eight-inch circle mm-hmm. now. Yep. However, that outer edge, you know, it's only getting polished part of the time because it's wobbling, right? So, so does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's not efficient at the at the outer edge. Oh, it's only being polished part of the time where the inside's being polished all the time. So in theory, you'd say, "Wow, I'm getting more polishing action and cutting more paint inside mm-hmm. the." the pad than than I am on the outer. Is that what you were showing me on the back when you flipped the the pad and you you put your hand and you said, "Hey, I'm only or is that was Yeah, that I showed that, you that, that were the actual footprint on the pad where you know, the business side of the pad where actually all the work was happening was around the middle. So that makes sense. So if you were trying to do edge work with it, you wouldn't you'd be somewhat ineffective. You would. It would be very inefficient. It's not smart. It's not. It's not the best way to go at edge work is to use a large stroke machine. So this is why we say there's always going to be room for a rotary because it's the best edge working tool there is that we have, and there's always going to be a need for shorter stroke machines. But not everybody can afford ten machines, so we have to say, well, what's the smart approach? Yeah. And you picked your three. I would pick, you know, something like a three inch rotary. And then I would have a shorter stroke machine that I could change the backing plate, like a G110. I could put a three-inch plate, a five-inch plate, a yeah, six-inch plate, like sand that. with it. Mm-hmm. And then I have well, my 21. Would, you know, um, I would challenge what you said in one scenario where I can think that edge work with a rotary is not the best tool for me. And that is in the scenario where you are on thin paint. Oh. You know you are on thin paint. Yeah, I, would, I, I would say a rotary is not the best approach. Well, but in other cases, yeah, it, it's best to, to do edge work because mm-hmm. you have complete control over that footprint where you are and where you're removing defects. I will ask you back, what, be more specific, because if you have a defect that is X deep and you need to remove X amount of material to eliminate that defect, then it doesn't matter if you polished it by hand, rotary, random orbital, or belt sander. If you can remove that paint, you've removed the defect. So be more specific on what you're he's saying. saying. He's saying thin paint is what I thought I heard you say. Are you saying there's so much force involved it's hard to control? Because yeah. I would say drop your speed and use a smaller diameter pad. So, yeah, I mean. No, I would say that I would be afraid of hooking an edge. I'd be afraid of too much friction, too much heat. Those are things uh, I would be And I would say about. anything that's deviating from off-center would be hooking even worse. So a pad that's moving side to side over, let's say, a one-inch the one inch uh, around a side window, if that was a you know a muscle car that that had the metal frame around where the window rolls up, you know, let's say they're an inch thick, and we have all these pigtail marks from where somebody had sanded that, and there was shrinkage. I would say that I could be more strategic with a rotary versus a random orbital that is deviating left and right and up, you know, side to side and rolling over those edges. But again, hey, maybe that's an example. We're not using machine; we're using Hand, hand application and yeah, something like M101 that would, you know, McGuire's M101 compound that would just knock that well, out maybe, in no time. Maybe it's a false uh, perception on my part, but I feel like I have more control over the rate of defect removal if I had a short stroke three inch, you know, offset tool mm. compared to uh, the same Maybe size it's like rotary. the 20 years of fear of rotary. It on could edges. be. Maybe it's a whole mental thing, mm. but. That's 
that's what's in my head on it. Yeah. Anytime I would be using a rotary in a, in a difficult situation like that, that, that if I had to use a very small pad, I would be aware of, well, if I've got a very small pad, let's say even a one inch diameter pad, I have less than a square inch of foam or, or wool or whatever I happen to be using to load residue and it's going to scour. I'm going to use two or three times more compound and I might even be misting with water to keep things fluid and cool and, and just repetitively go over that area versus 5,000 RPM. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I would be, I'd be aware of that fact. And, that, mm. and I'm saying that anybody that uses a rotary, whether it's drill mounted or it's a, a giant DeWalt or whatever it happens to be, is you, you need to be aware of what's going on between that pad and that paint. There's heat generation. Right. There's residue. You know, it's, it, it, it's, a critical, it's a critical mistake if something goes wrong. Yeah. And that's why I think maybe like going back to this false perception, maybe I have this feeling that, you know, I can be a little bit asleep at the wheel and not be concerned as much, you know. Well, we know when we were, you were developing M105 and we were working on the Alpine projects mm -hmm. and we were working on these very sharp edges that even I said, man, I don't want to even rotary that. This car has got a deadline of 24 hours and it's got to go to this, you know, international consumer electronics show and I don't want to be the guy that burns the edges Burn off the of edge. that custom paint yeah. job. Mm -mm. And so what did we do? We took the G100, Meguiar's random orbital with an 8 millimeter throw, mm -hmm. this prototype microfiber thing and this uh, prototype compound, right. and we edge worked that. Yeah. Instead of with a rotary, we did it all, with, it all with that machine. With that. Yeah. So in that case, That's you're right. right. That was safer. In that case, I, I felt more comfortable. But you got to understand what we're dealing with microfiber and 105 at the time uh, just it was blowing our mind right. wasn't it yeah. yeah that was a that was a big aha moment working on that alpine car like oh imagine. my gosh i can imagine it was incredible all right we're at about 53 minutes i want to you know sort of cap this off because it's been an amazing conversation and i think uh you know we've learned so much today alone this today has been so long uh, it, if, if you guys can even imagine what what's gone on you have to have the visual we do Larry is rubbing with his fingers, his forehead and his eyeballs and his cheeks just going, wow, I'm just, my mind is blown and I'm tired and I'm on. It's also, what is it, like midnight or past that 1230 here, but I'm also three hours. Right. Behind. It's three o'clock in the morning for me right now. Yeah. I'm the walking dead. But this stuff is really interesting. So I wanted to end this conversation with priming the pad and what we're calling seasoning the pad. I think oh, yeah. it's just uh, it's just an unbelievable. Um, I don't want to call it a topic. It's so much bigger than that because I feel like um, you know, for years I always think of priming the pad as just like I can't think of the right word. Can, can you help me out with a word here? It's just like the thing that you did before you got to the work. And this now, to me, seems like this is so vital. To, to this is like you're going into battle. And you're not bringing your sword, you know what I mean, in the past. Now well, I'm you know what, Larry? It goes back to what we talked about earlier about microfiber at the filament level. You know, we said that microfiber grabs and holds. That's mm -hmm. what it's designed to do. So this whole seasoning and pad thing becomes much more important. And I think because microfiber is, you know, bigger on the scene of pad choices now. And now it's become a bigger issue because, I mean, roll the time back to the age of foam pads, but prior to microfiber pads, priming a pad used to be spray, 
a spritz of water or spray your, you know, spray detailer on the pad and and you're primed. Uh, squirt some product on there, turn the machine on, put it to paint, and start going. Well, with foam having this capillary effect and the fluid can actually move through the foam pad. So eventually, after several applications, you're in a sense self-priming. You're getting to a prime point where that pad is seasoned eventually mm -hmm. because of you're moving this fluid around on the foam pad. But now that doesn't happen with microfiber disc. You can you can put four dots on a microfiber disc and actually polish down the side of a car, pull the paint, pull the pad away from the paint, and you'll have four dots on the microfiber disc. So there's a lot less movement of fluid around on a microfiber disc. So that's why this becomes very important, uh, this thing we're calling uh, seasoning. Um, and chime in here, Kevin, where you just got to – you have to get the compound or the polish, whatever you're working with, to be coated on every fiber, all the fibers. Mm. Otherwise, those fibers that are not coated are yeah, – What do they do? Well, they, They're not effective or do they scratch? Well – they could do both. One thing is they're they're certainly not doing what they could be doing if they had been lubricated and coated by whatever product you're using. But the other thing is on the case of if you had softer paint, let's say, and you're pulling off residue quickly, that's an area where it's going to quickly clump up there. Mm, if okay. Sticky sticky paint residue, sticking on fibers. Yeah, and I and I still will prime most times with foam pads too because uh, well yeah you're you're actually Kevin the best I've ever seen any detailer do at priming foam pads. I didn't even think it was a thing. That's what I keep saying. I thought it was just <laughs> like a. I don't even know it's what the word is. Basically, the premise of what the Kevin Brown method that was named by Todd Helm for yeah. you know for me and. Which is not really the kitchen broom method, it's right? The, right. The <laughs> but, but I just have a belief that, as an example, you know, some compounds will use a hard particle, let's say an aluminum oxide or something like that, something that's very hard and durable, among the hardest materials in the world. Okay, and I feel that um, by priming, let's say I took a, a cutting pad and I was going to be compounding a car, so I'm getting ready uh, rid of harsh defects, I'll prime that foam pad uh, with an intent to essentially create a hard barrier. I'm using an abrasive-laden compound, and I'm rubbing it onto the foam. Mm -hmm. And I have a belief that at some point you're creating a hard barrier because you've got so much aluminum oxide particulate there on the pad mm -hmm. that it's going to make it more difficult for liquids to flow through to paint for paint residue to get into the foam so structure. Sort of Pushing it back onto yeah. the, the, the paint. I mean, it, it's, it's a kind of a funny thing to think about, but I try to think literally. I don't have a chemistry background. I don't have a physics background. I just am a car guy, so I understand nuts and bolts and mechanics and how pistons and rings work. So I, I envision things mechanically, and I think, well, if I've got this abrasive mixed in this liquid and I rub it onto this soft surface, well, haven't I just transferred a bunch of hard stuff onto this surface? So I think, well... Maybe that's like a damming effect and a barrier. So now when I add more compound and then I set that pad on top of the compound that's on the paint, I'm sort of trapping my compound. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I've already preloaded. Pack, you're packing it in the pores, and yeah, I could see that. So now I've yeah, got like more that. motion of the abrasive staying between the pad and the paint. And then getting, getting more wedged up done. into the pad, going yeah. from the 
And I'm not yeah. getting this pad saturation that a lot of guys would if they didn't because I blocked the tunnels. I'm not allowing fluid to get in so easily. So yeah. my pads tend to last longer and not get as wet or saturated as a guy that doesn't prime. It's interesting. That's it's so very counter odd. Thi- it's like counterintuitive to think that way. Yeah, it is. But I've been doing this for a number of years now. And, um, you know, I originally started doing that because I wanted to replicate what the microfiber was doing. Because when I saw what the microfiber pad did. Oh, you were thinking surface area. I was thinking, I can't talk about this, but how can I tell a guy to maximize the potential of a foam pad to get anywhere near the cut of what this microfiber is doing until it comes out? You couldn't talk about it because it was prior to the launch. Right. Gotcha. Right. And it was a long launch. It took a while. Yeah. And that's where I started thinking, well, if I can replicate the surface area, right? I can say, well, the microfiber's got a lot of potential surface area. Well, let me let me load my pad. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if I put too much, it was just a goopy mess. Nothing was happening. So at some point, you rub it in and you say, okay, that's pretty good. Now let me, you know, it was just it was just a, a work in progress, and it just clicked, and I started noticing, wow, my pad's not getting saturated. Wow, I'm getting tremendous cut. Wow, look at the finishing. And then you start thinking, why is it finishing? And it just everything linked and linked and linked and linked. The seasoning and brine. Yeah, yeah, and it's just so interesting, you know. You're a mad scientist. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm just a guy that I had the I had the ability to polish a car to the highest level, but I never thought about how it was getting there. I was pointing and shooting. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't have a good aim. I just was shooting at everything. <laughs> say, well, I know there's probably 12 targets. I'm going to try to hit every one of those, and so. Not until I started writing about it on forums and trying to explain to guys what's going on that I finally said, well, if I'm going to tell a guy to buff out 1,000 RPM of the rotary, maybe I better tell him why, not not 1,200 or 14. And you know, it, As you start to think that way, it really it really helps you become a, a troubleshooter. And instead of working on a, trying to figure out a paint, how to polish that to perfection for an hour to four hours, you can do it in two to ten minutes, mm-hmm. which we've done. we've done that out there today. Yeah, we definitely did. Well, and I think going back to that Alpine uh, car experience that we had, you know, many years ago, it was our, you know, really first trial at that kind of a caliber car. But we had such wow, aha moments through there that I think that was the beginning of you, Kevin, asking yourselves mostly, what the heck just happened? How did it do that? You know, we had such a amazing result on that alpine car with this microfiber disc in the early 105 formula and it w- it then became okay how how in the heck did that happen how did that how did it do that well yeah and that that, that leads so there's two reasons i became good at analyzing and and figuring out how to polish paint and, and figure out what's going on one you became that was that became a part of your job was R&D, yeah. building new products. Right. And I was allowed to test those with you. So you needed feedback. Right. So if I'm going to give you feedback, I better tell you, well, I don't like it. You'll say, okay, that's fine. Thanks, Kevin. No. no You're going to yeah, say, why don't why? you like it? <laughs> and I'll tell you, well, I didn't like it because of these reasons. Well, did you do this or did you do that? So yeah. I started keeping track of these things. And then when I started writing, like I said before, I had to know yeah. why I was why recommending So interesting how that developed yeah. this has been uh this has been quite the conversation 
uh, today was uh, absolutely amazing. I appreciate you both coming on. Have any final thoughts before we sign off on uh, anything you want to leave? Because this was a ton of information. I'm sure people are going to go back and re-listen to it and definitely go to your website. To I think you, you wrote a bunch of articles and whatnot on each Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of articles on there, and uh, I'll add them over time. But there's so much information on the forums now and on, on Facebook, on different groups, and I'm always accessible by phone or text message or email. Well, leave people with – I'm trying to – is that so much information that sometimes like your brain explodes? Can you boil that down to like a, a sentence or two or a, a theme that you want people to take away with, you know, walk away with thinking, okay, I, I need to think about this or I need to focus on practicing such and such. Is there any way to scrunch that down? Oh, I, I could. Yeah. Go ahead. You go ahead. Well, two, two words, priming or seasoning and cleaning. Those are two themes of this whole thing is, when it comes to pad, mm-hmm. you know, pad maintenance, mm-hmm. seasoning that pad in the beginning properly, and then cleaning paint residue as you go. Those those are key themes I think we've been talking about. Yeah, I th- and I, I want to talk right. on that that seasoning. We we made a uh, we were talking about priming yesterday and, and how there's confusion because some guys will think priming means you miss the you yeah. miss the pad with water or a detail or spray, where another guy he may have heard of rubbing some stuff on there All on. Right. So we decided let's say, let's let's take the priming word out for the time being and yeah. let's transfer that to seasoning where you season something it, yeah. mm-hmm. it's been it's been prepared to be used and we mean in in seasoning we're talking about rubbing on the, the compound or the buffing liquid yeah. Yeah. and preparing the pad that way. So right. we're going to try to make an effort to talk about seasoning versus right. priming, yeah. just, priming just to eliminate confusion. A, yeah, it has a little bit of a connotation to it from the last 20 years. Of, yeah, so so you've got your two. I'd say the two things I would say if you want to become a, a better, more efficient paint polisher would be to minimize your options. You don't for, – for the time being, try to use you know, two or three. If you've got 12 – Compounds and twelve polishes. Let's 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 yeah. shelve nine there are of those. Way each. too many variables in yeah. the bucket. All your brain one. can't process what changed from the last one, and it, yeah. you basically ah, that didn't work. Well, it's it's like, very well, frustrating. Why? Very frustrating. Yeah. And the second thing I would say to do is don't think of paints as soft or hard. Just think of them as how fast is residue loading. And if I if you literally are working on hard ceramic paint, keep in mind. When you ground that paint away, it's still ceramic paint. It's just been pulverizing ground to small parts that are now transferring onto your pad, mm-hmm. and they're they're burying your pad, they're burying your abrasives in your compound, and and stalling their ability to do their job. So it becomes even more important to control to keep to clean the pad, or maybe mm-hmm. use a little more liquid. Right. That's. That's a huge concept. <laughs> this has been. This that's has another been great. podcast. That's a whole other yes. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing, basically the same thing that he was talking about uh, the whole time. But uh, I, I I, can only imagine people are listening while they're detailing or driving or whatever and going, oh, my gosh. That was a lot of information. So thank you very much for, for coming on and chatting with us and uh, exploring this crazy brain of yours, Kevin Brown. Uh, and, of course, Jason Rose uh, from McGuire's uh, hanging out with us. BuffDaddy.com. You're on uh, Facebook all I'm the time. On Facebook, and yeah. what's really cool about uh, Kevin Brown is you can call him, he'll pick up the phone, and then he'll chat with you and you know, figure out and help you figure out your particular situation, which most people don't uh, do that, which is pretty cool. And, of course, Jason Rose, 
He always picks up his knife. <laughs> <laughs> he, he called McGuire's headquarters and asked directly for Jason Rose, and he'll come <laughs> running immediately. I'm a little less accessible than Kevin <laughs> <Brown>. <laughs> Always, guys, thanks, uh, thanks for being on. Of course, you can uh, visit my website at AmmoNYC.com. Shoot me an email at Larry at AmmoNYC.com. And we are going to uh, have an amazing uh, video with the two of these um, really great detailers on Matt's car, which would be a lot of fun. So a lot of things that we talked about, we're going to show and talk about at the same time on a, uh, you know, on a YouTube video, which is going to help um, sort of maybe bring this all home for you. So make sure you check that out. Uh, any questions, shoot me an email, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening. 